everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. This week on Everyday Injustice features the first of three progressive prosecutor candidates or former candidates. Today, we have Eli Savitt, who is running for DA in Washtenaw County in Michigan, and that is the home of Ann Arbor and, of course, the University of Michigan. Then later in the week, we have George Gascone, who moved from San Francisco DA to candidate for DA in Los Angeles, and John Viev, Jones-Wright, who ran in 2018 and might run again in San Diego for DA. So welcome to our show, Eli. Thank you so much for having me. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so uh, so I started my career, actually. I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, uh, in Washington County, the county that I'm running for prosecutor in. Um, I started my career actually as a, as a teacher. I taught uh, eighth grade general education, special education classes. I uh, did that for, before law school, and that's a perspective that really informs my work. Um, after law school, I was in private practice for several years. Um, I did all sorts of cases, among other things. I represented criminal defendants. Uh, I represented uh, folks that were, were seeking asylum in this country, uh, kids with special needs, uh, victims of domestic violence and spousal abuse, victims of consumer fraud. Uh, after that, I had the tremendous opportunity to work for Justice Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court um, in Washington, D.C., and then I decided to come home. Uh, I, I went back to Ann Arbor to the place where I was born and raised. Uh, my current job is I'm senior legal counsel at the city of Detroit, where, among other things, I lead our criminal justice reform work at the at the state level. Uh, it's something that, you know, the lasting stigma of convictions is something that's holding a lot of Detroiters back. Um, and we are really working to uh, assist with expungement and make sure that uh, we help returning citizens. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, I lead our uh, public interest litigation program. So among other things, we're, you know, suing the opioid industry. Uh, we go after banks and slumlords that are maintaining their houses in uninhabitable conditions. Um, and so that's my portfolio. But I decided to run for a prosecutor out here in Washington County, in my home county, because at every step of my career, um, really beginning when I was a teacher and then through my work uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court in Detroit, I've just seen how the cascading consequences of a broken criminal justice system and the policies of mass incarceration. So 
uh, running to change all of that. Um, we got an election coming up this year, 2020, and, and I'm excited and ready to go. So before I get into the details of your race, I think, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has kind of become uh, the iconic figure on the left in terms of the Supreme Court. What was it like working for her? Oh, I mean, <laughs> it was a dream. Uh, it was it was a tremendous experience. You know, she is uh, a legal icon and, you know, she would be, frankly, even if she had never been a justice on the Supreme Court. You know, I mean, her her role in, in litigating cases and really establishing women's rights um, as something that exists in the Constitution, uh, you know, is historic stuff. And, you know, you, you work at these jobs for a year and, you know, she's your boss and, and so you go into work every day. But sometimes, you know, I can remember just, just sitting with her at a table going over an opinion or, you know, talking to her about cases and, and you would sort of have an, an out-of-body experience and you'd just say like, how lucky am I to be here and to be learning from uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, this person that, frankly, I've always uh, admired and, and, and somebody who has done so much for this country. So it, it was just a wonderful experience and I'm honored to have done it. So kind of basically, why are you running for DA? Yeah, well, look, because our criminal justice system, uh, it affects every single aspect of our society and i've seen over the course of my career how it is holding us back um and and look here in washington county uh we pride ourselves actually on being a progressive county but the truth of the matter is our justice system here and um starting with the prosecutor's office has been anything but you know we have in Washington County, a recidivism rate of, of close to 70%, which means that we're basically just shuffling people in and out of jail and prison. And, you know, they go right back out and, you know, keep doing bad things. Uh, at the same time, we have a, we have a, a, about 80% of the people that are in our justice system are dealing with some underlying form of substance abuse. And when you, when you take those two things together, it just demonstrates we're doing things wrong here. We're not addressing the root cause of crime. We're not rehabilitating. Nothing we are doing is making us uh, making us safer. If you look at that recidivism rate, so so why not do things differently? Why would we continue to just you know shuffle people in and out of jail and prisons when it is not working? It's costing us money and it's uh, really holding people's lives back. You know, another big reason that I got into this race is because we have a huge equity problem in. Washtenaw County. Um, you know, we have, I think it's, it's close to 70% of the kids that are in our juvenile justice system are black as compared to just 12% of the general population in Washtenaw County. Uh, in Washtenaw County, you are 8.5 times more likely to be held on cash bail uh, because you can't afford to pay if you are black than if you are white. That is the largest discrepancy uh, of, of any county that was surveyed in Michigan. And, you know, our, our current prosecutor was asked, what are you doing about this? You know, what are you doing to ensure equity? And the answer was, we don't track that. We don't do anything. Uh, you know, we, we have a policy that we don't charge people based on race. But beyond that, we're not concerned with racial discrepancy. I, you know, the truth of the matter is, that outrages me as, as uh, somebody, uh, for somebody to say in, in my own community, in the, in the community that I was born and raised, I don't think it reflects our community values. And, you know, I decided to throw my hat in the ring and, 
and, and run for this seat because I think we can do much, much better and we can build a justice system here that we can really be proud of. You know, it's amazing because uh, what you just described could define my county, uh, Yolo County, where uh, UC Davis is, uh, very similar, uh, probably demographics and everything and mm-hmm. uh, similar situation. So it's it, it's interesting how much continuity there is across the country. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the current DA there? Yeah, so so the, the current DA has been in office for 28 years. Um, he is sort of a traditional tough on crime um, county prosecutor. Uh, he was you know he was first elected in 1992, has never really faced um, a, a serious reelection campaign. Um, and you know he comes from the era that, that I think many of the prosecutors, the elected prosecutors across the country do where you know the conventional wisdom was, being a prosecutor means trying to just lock up all the bad guys uh, for as long as possible, um, and you run on a tough-on-crime message, and that's ultimately what's going to get you re-elected. Um, that's, that's certainly been what's happened out here. Um, you know, I think the, the community is really ready for a change, though, and, and I think you, know, you mentioned that this could probably describe communities across the country. I really think that we've seen a sea change and the way people are thinking about criminal justice in this country, um, you know, really just even over the last five years, I don't know if you could run this kind of race uh, and being as openly progressive as, as I am even five years ago. But, the, uh, you know, the reception that we're getting in the community has been tremendous. Uh, we picked up a lot of, you know, great endorsements. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around reshaping the criminal justice system here in Washtenaw County. And so, you know, after 28 years of Brian Mackey, I think people are ready for a real change. And are you the only challenger to him? <clears throat> so he, so I, well, so he, I, I got into the race intending to challenge Brian Mackey and uh, reflecting the fact that people are ready for a change. Uh, about three weeks later, he, he decided he didn't want to run again. So it's now an open seat. Um, I, I am running against two other declared candidates. Uh, one is, you know, his former deputy who, uh, you know, Brian Mackey is supporting and is sort of the anointed heir apparent um, to that office. So I'm still running uh, the race that, that I thought I'd be running, uh, sort of uh, our message against more of the same. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, certainly a different, uh, a different person that's, <laughs> that's, that's seeking to, to take that mantle from him. And then there's a, a third challenger in, in, in the race as well. So, so it's exciting times here. Now, is the uh, anointed one, uh, <laughs> is he running on somewhat of a reform or is he running on more of the same? You know, it's, it's interesting because and I think it reflects really uh, how quickly the conversation has shifted. Um, she is running, I, w- I would say, a campaign that uh, sounds in reform but, but is, uh, is light on details, right? You, you know, um, substantively, we differ greatly on several issues. She's not. Uh, I think the prosecutor needs to do a lot more to ensure fair and equitable sentences. She doesn't think that that's the, the role of the prosecutor. Um, I, I think we should be helping people get their criminal records expunged if they're eligible for it under Michigan law. Uh, she doesn't think so. But, you know, the, the, so we have policy differences. 
um, I think she smartly realizes that people are ready for change. And so, you know, what she says is that, that things will change in the prosecutor's office. Um, you know, she throws out terms like restorative justice, which is, um, you know, something that I support as a concept, uh, but, it's, but it's sort of become a buzzword and a little bit overused. But, but you know, I mean, it's, it's really a reflective of the political dynamic that uh, I don't think anybody thinks you can run anymore in this county running the type of tough on crime race uh, that has proven successful over the past several decades, uh, which is which is really heartening. Well, it's really interesting because that sounds very similar to what happened in San Francisco last fall, uh, where mm-hmm. where you had the very progressive candidate taking on uh, kind of the uh, establishment candidate that was anointed, <clears throat> and uh, and she ended up uh, you know giving lip service to reform, but she ended up. Uh, losing uh in a very uh tight election uh so it'll be interesting to watch how these uh races start to shape yeah yeah no and it, it was it was really great to see uh Tessa Boudin pull that out in san francisco uh so it's a race that i, I was following very closely uh you know and, and the other race that that it reminds me of is uh the queen of the eighth race where you had tiffany caban running a, a very openly progressive uh platform that proved really popular and a, a lot of her opponents, including the eventual uh, victor, just sort of co-opted the language around it. Um, I really wish that Tiffany would have been able to pull that off in, in, in Queens. It was just razor thin. But, but you're seeing how powerful the message of reform is when these more traditional prosecutors and traditional candidates feel like they have to uh, co-opt the language. Yeah, and I think this really comes down uh, to people's concern about mass incarceration. And can you talk about how you're going to treat that issue and how you're going to do what people are calling decarceration? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so look, my, my point of view on incarceration is that the only time we should be locking people up is if they pose uh, a threat to society and need to be separated. Um, I don't believe in just handing down long sentences uh, for retribution's sake. Um, and, 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 and frankly, I think that jail and prison is highly overused as a, a tool in the criminal justice system. My overarching plan is to, is to say, look, incarceration will happen for some crimes. You know, if you murder somebody, you're probably a threat to society. And it's going to be a last resort, not a first option. Um, whenever possible, I want to facilitate a decarceral approach. I do not want to be charging people for low-level crimes of poverty, things like you know, driving with a suspended license because you're unable to pay your traffic tickets here. That's not something that should land you in jail or prison. It's counterproductive, frankly, because you know, the reason that you were unable to pay your fines is because you're poor. How does taking you away from the job, away from the family, away from the housing help solve that, right? So I, I would treat a lot of this stuff as, as civil offenses rather than, than criminal. Um, I'm a big fan of pre-charge uh, deflection where, you know, if somebody is dealing with a substance abuse issue, a uh, mental health issue, uh, you get them help before you even involve them in the criminal justice system. And that's sort of what's, what you demand of them before filing charges. 
I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, if you do file charges, of problem-solving courts where, you know, uh, you're, di- you're diverted into a, a court where what the justice system asks of you is that you come up with a plan to address perhaps your underlying addiction or address uh, the PTSD or trauma you might be experiencing. And if you're able to stick with that plan, then the charges go away. All of these are better alternatives uh, than incarceration because they address the root causes of what's driving behavior. Uh, and in many cases, you know, we've been treating drug addiction as though it's a criminal matter for decades and decades in this country. It's a health issue. Locking people up doesn't address a health issue. And it's ultimately counterproductive, um, both in terms of the lives that we have ruined and in terms of uh, the money that we're spending. Um, so, so these are all tools that I'm going to use to reduce a- incarceration rates here in Washtenaw County. And you know, the thing we're going to be doing is we are going to stop holding people in jail because they are too poor to afford to get out. Uh, cash bail is a real problem here in Washtenaw County. I mean, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the racial inequity that is associated with it is, um, is, is just staggering out here in this supposedly progressive county. Um, and frankly, in my view, when you're locking people up in jail simply because they can't afford to pay to get out, that actually causes more crime. Uh, you're making people desperate. They are likely to lose their job. They are likely to lose their housing. Their kids may well have to switch schools. It is a counterproductive measure that criminalizes poverty, and we're not doing it around prosecutor. Well, you uh, anticipated one of my questions on cash bail. Uh, yeah. So let me ask you a tough question then. Um, sure. So we had uh, Rachel Barco, the New York uh, University law professor out here last summer. Mm-hmm. And one of her points was that, you know, criminal justice reform is only scratching the surface. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can get a little bit of decarceration uh, by liberalizing drug crimes and things like that. But until you attack the violent core crimes that nobody wants to attack, uh, you're not going to really change anything. What do you think yeah. on that? You know, she's, she's right. Um, and the truth of the matter is our prison system is largely filled with people that have committed violent crimes. I'll say a couple of things. Number one, um, if you can rewind the clock, it's very rare uh, that somebody commits a serious violent crime and that is their first brush with the criminal justice system. So I do think that investment up front in you know, diversion and deflection programs that really address the trauma that a young person may be going through can actually prevent those violent crimes from happening in the first place. I mean, shuffling kids in and out of the juvenile detention center is counterproductive. Uh, you, you don't, the, the truth of the matter is, it's rare that, you know, kids' lives turn around uh, by throwing them in juvie. It's far better, in my view, uh, if they have a brush with the law initially to, uh, you know, work with them, give them something productive to do, address any underlying trauma that might be going on. If you do that, I think you can prevent those violent crimes from happening in the first place. But 
Number two, you, you know, when, when they do happen, I think we need to look at different models of justice there too. Oh, I'm a big fan of restorative justice. Um, and, you know, the, the, the restorative justice at its core is, um, is, you know, an alternative to incarceration in which if the survivor of a crime uh, chooses to go down this path, uh, both the survivor and the person that committed uh, harm are prepared by trade mediators. They sit down and they come up with an opportunity with a, with a plan together for how the person that committed harm can take responsibility and how in an individualized way it can make the survivor whole. Now, I see this as a really promising model for dealing not just with lower level crime, but, but you know, frankly, violent crimes as well. Uh, the place in the country that uh, I think the work is being done best is out in New York City, where Danielle Sered is, is running a program that includes restorative justice as an alternative to incarceration for even violent crimes. And they have to take responsibility and, and face the, the, the harm that they've done. Um, survivors choose this option 90% of the time when given a choice, and they report greater satisfaction with the outcome. And again, this is for a whole array of crimes. So, you know, it's a model that works. It's evidence-based. Um, it, you know, it, it is survivor-focused. And it is an alternative to incarceration that I think we should be using, um, you know, for, for a whole host of crimes, which includes crimes of violence. Um, now, I, I will say this. You do have an obligation to keep the community safe as prosecutor, And, of course, I'm going to do that. And if, you know, there there is reason to believe that you pose a threat to the community, an imminent threat, then, then that's where I do think, you know, you have a duty to separate people from the community. Uh, but, but like I said, whenever possible, I don't want to go down that pathway because I think ultimately it's, it's not particularly rehabilitative, it's counterproductive, and it is fueling mass incarceration. So we're going to look for alternatives wherever possible. So um, I noticed that you're talking about plea bargaining reform, which is something that I actually haven't seen a lot um, as I talk to people around the country. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we, we all think of the criminal justice system as playing out uh, like it does on TV. You know, you go to trial, a jury renders a verdict, but, but that's not actually the way that most cases are disposed of. Uh, 97% of the cases, at least Washington County, are disposed of via plea bargain. And th that functionally makes the prosecutor, uh, you know, both the, 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 the jury and, and in a lot of cases, the judge. I mean, the judge has to sign off on a plea bargain. I don't want to um, cut out uh, and understate the, the role of judicial supervision here. But the prosecutor is making the offer. Um, and, you know more likely than not, almost 100% of the time, the court is going to sign off on whatever the two parties agree to. But, but look, there is, you know, this is a, plea bargaining is a, is a negotiation process, but it's not in a level playing field. Um, you know, somebody is sitting across the table from a prosecutor whose, you know, freedom, whose resources, whose, whose life may be on the line there. Um, and the prosecutor can threaten to, you know, impose 
huge aggravators on top of uh, the crime that they've been charged with. They can say, you know, if you don't, if you turn down our offer for a year in prison, say, we're taking this to trial, we're going to throw in an aggravator, and you're going to be in there for 15 or 20 years. Now, a lot of times, um, <laughs> prosecutors are bluffing, just to put it, just to, just to put it uh, bluntly. They don't have the goods on the aggravator. They don't have the goods to prove up beyond a reasonable doubt some of the crimes that they are threatening. And to me, that is inherently coercive. Uh, if you and I were sitting down and negotiating a corporate transaction, say, uh, you know, you might start with a, with, with a high price, and I might start with a low price, and we'd meet in the middle somewhere. But prosecutors are different. Prosecutors are supposed to be, you know, ministers of justice, and you should not be threatening somebody uh, with charges that you cannot prove up beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. So that's one aspect of plea bargaining reform. I'm going to take that coercion off the table. Uh, every single offer that we are going to start with and anything that we say we will be seeking a trial is going to be something that the evidence is there for and we're confident we can prove up beyond a reasonable doubt. The second thing is, you know, plea bargaining reform fits in with cash bail reform. Because if you are sitting in jail pre-trial um, and you have been assessed cash bail and you are too poor uh, to make it and to basically buy your way out of jail, when you sit across a prosecutor, you may have been in jail for days, weeks, months, whatever, and you're desperate. You may plead guilty to something you didn't do simply because you need to get home to your family. You need to get back to, 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 to work. Uh, you want out of jail. So when we stop holding people in jail because simply because they're poor, I think we are going to get systematically a much fairer plea bargaining process because people aren't going to be, you know, so desperate that they have to sometimes admit to something that they may not have even done. And then the third thing is this. Uh, often as part of uh, a plea bargain, prosecutors force defendants to give up their rights to an appeal. Um, and, and I don't agree with that. Oftentimes, you know, you come into the system, uh, there may be a constitutional question about uh, the legality of the stop that led to the arrest, right? Or, or a, a defendant may have a very legitimate reason to believe that the procedures that were used were unconstitutional or unlawful, right? Uh, a prosecutor will make them drop those legal arguments and make it so they cannot, uh, cannot pursue them up on appeal as the price for giving them a plea bargain. I don't agree with that systematically because I think it's important that, you know, when constitutional violations occur, uh, we identify them and we eliminate them. If you're forcing defendants to give up their rights to an appeal, uh, that removes, you know, in 97% of these cases that are disposed of via plea bargaining, that removes a way of doing so. So, so I'm an opponent of forcing defendants to give up their rights to, to, to appeal as part of a, a plea bargaining process. That's something uh, that we're not going to do in our prosecutor either. So, so that's, uh, that's really good because I think, you know, one of the big issues that a lot of people don't recognize is that there is such a steep penalty for going to trial that mm -hmm. we've basically usurped people's right to a trial, uh, which yeah. doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, and, and it's, it's true. And, um, you know, it's not good for the justice system as a whole, right? Because if you, if you think the best way of, of identifying the truth of the matter, uh, is to you know, go to trial and, and we have robust due process protections, um, in, in the United States of America. And if you think of that as a, as, as a way of identifying the truth, you know, think of all the people who are pleading guilty to things that they didn't do, right? That doesn't help anybody. That means that there's somebody else out there that may have committed a crime, right? That that, that you're not looking for anymore simply because you know you forced somebody who was desperate into pleading guilty to something. It's it, it's totally counterproductive. You know, I think plea bargaining has its place. Uh, it allows people to you know save resources, it allows people to get on with their lives, fine. But it needs to be conducted on a level play, level playing field that we shouldn't be coercing people um, into taking deals that they otherwise wouldn't and certainly into uh confessing to something they didn't do yeah so um you mentioned doing something that they didn't do uh you happen to be down the street from the national registry of exonerations um Mm -hmm. so what are you planning to do about wrongful convictions and conviction integrity uh well we are starting a conviction integrity unit in washington county um I, i i think every prosecutor's office frankly, in the country should have a conviction review unit or, or at least a conviction review uh, team because the most grievous error that a prosecutor can make and that the justice system can make is to convict an actually innocent person of a crime. I mean, you know, you, you are taking somebody's liberty uh, away from them for something they did not do and at the same time, there is somebody that, that did that crime that's getting off because you've identified the wrong person. So we're going to have a conviction integrity unit in Washtenaw County. Uh, we are going to identify, uh, you know, uh, plausible claims of actual innocence. And if we identify those cases, we are going to act very swiftly to make sure that people who were wrongfully convicted are exonerated and are set free. And are you going to have people specifically only tasked with being in that unit? Uh, so, well, yes, we will have dedicated attorneys in that unit. Whether or not I have the resources to make it a full-time position, uh, I'll have to play with the budget there. Uh, you know, the prosecutor's office here is about 30 lawyers, 20 support staff. Um, but but absolutely, we will have dedicated lawyers, whether that's going to be all that they do. Um, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I've got to figure out a staffing plan, so I don't want to commit to anything that... Um, you, you, you know, I might not be able to do budget-wise down the line. Fair enough. Um, and then what about police accountability? Yeah, so, so look, so we had um, actually a, a police an officer-involved shooting in Washtenaw County uh, over five years ago. And the prosecutor's office, uh, in, in my view, just, just bungled it horribly. Uh, this was a this was a woman, a black woman, that was killed. Uh, she, she had a history of mental illness, and she was shot and killed by an Ann Arbor police officer. Um, you know, we have we have a statute in the state of Michigan which provides that any time there is an officer involved shooting, um, or any time uh, I'm sorry, any time a prosecutor's impartiality can be reasonably questioned. Uh, the, the local prosecutor's office can refer the case up to the state attorney general, who will then 
appoint uh, another county prosecutor who's, you know, not conflicted, who's, who doesn't have ties to the community to come in and make the charging decision. Inexplicably, in my view, uh, the current prosecutor opted not to use that tool when deciding whether to charge the officer uh, involved in, in this shooting. And he decided that on his own, he was going to uh, not charge and made that decision on his own. To me, that was exactly the wrong move. Prosecutors and police work hand in glove uh, in the community. That's just the way that it is. Um, and it caused a lot of pain and anguish uh, in many parts of Washtenaw County when the current prosecutor decided that, you know, this incident didn't warrant charges. Categorically, I think, when we have a officer-involved shooting or, or an instance of severe police misconduct here, that needs to be referred up to the attorney general. Uh, we've got a pretty good one here in Michigan right now, uh, and that needs to be delegated to somebody that can come in with a fresh set of eyes and whose impartiality isn't going to be questioned. The statute is there for a reason, and it befuddles me uh, that, that, that we haven't been using it here in Washington County uh, to, to deal with cases of police misconduct. So is the death penalty an issue there? We, one, of the, one of the things I'm proudest of as a Michigander is we have never had the death penalty. Oh, wow. So uh, I, I, I'm categorically against the death penalty, but yep, we, 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 we've never had the death penalty. We are a leader in that regard. Go blue. Yeah. Good job. Uh, yep. Okay. <laughs> and then finally, uh, kind of place yourself within the progressive uh, prosecution movement. Yeah. Look, look, I see this as a movement. I see it as a nationwide movement. Um, and if we really want to turn the page, on the era of mass incarceration, if we really want to end the national shame where the United States incarcerates more people per capita than any country in the world, we need progressive prosecutors and district attorneys in every county, in every state across the country, because these decisions, the charting decisions, the decisions about whether you get diversion, whether to pursue restorative justice, uh, you know, how you plea bargain, whether you're holding people on cash bail, all of those fundamentally are made by the local county prosecutors. So I'm proud to be a part of this movement. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm a big admirer of progressive prosecutors who have been elected across the country. You know, Rachel Rollins out in, out in Supple County in Boston, Kim Fox in Chicago, Larry Krasner in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, really looking forward to seeing what Chesa Boudin will do out in San Francisco. Um, I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of that movement. I'm proud of allies across the country. And, you know, I think it's a start of great things. You know, it, this is a, this is a, the progressive prosecutor movement is really one that is just a few years old at this point. Um, but you're seeing real changes that impact people's lives in so many ways across the country. Uh, we're going to bring that to Washington County. I'm excited about it. And, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we get thousands of progressive prosecutors in place across the country and we can once and for all end the era of mass incarceration in the United States. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
That was Eli Savitt. He is a candidate for DA out of Washtenaw County in Michigan, which is the home of Ann Arbor. This has been Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again later this week, and we'll have some more progressive prosecutors. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.